Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to The Open Door. Jim Hannock here with co-host Mario Ramos y Reyes. Our special guest is Jeffrey Stewart. Mr. Stewart has served as a delegate in writing the new platform of the American Solidarity Party, and he was very involved in the drafting of the foreign policy plank. And that will be our focus today. But we begin, as always, in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. Lord, by the light of the Holy Spirit, you have taught the hearts of your faithful. In the same Spirit, help us to relish what is right, and always rejoice in your consolation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Jeffrey, I wonder (laughs) if you couldn't, first of all, tell us a little bit about the process of becoming a delegate for the uh, convention, uh, which was just a few weeks ago, and then... Tell us uh, a bit about the actual process in in drafting this plank of the platform. Sure, uh, the process for becoming a delegate was uh, you know the party had some uh, had some elections uh, a while ago. Uh, we did regional elections to elect delegates from each uh, region. Uh, and I believe it's sort of a north south. Uh, Oh, I can't remember. There's a Western, and I can't remember all of the uh, the actual divisions for the delegates, but I'm one of the uh, part of the Southern region. Uh, I, I now live in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, and that was pretty straightforward. Uh, once the delegates uh, were selected, there was the the organization of the, the teams to begin work, and we really did go through sort of the, uh, uh, what are they, Tuckman's, uh uh, stages of group development, the uh, the forming, uh, storming, norming, and performing. Uh, we did go through all of those stages. The early uh, the early work was a lot of uh, good natured uh, and sincere butting of heads on how to get the work done, um, which is to be expected. Everyone sort of has their idea to do it uh, on how to do it, and um, and I'll be honest, there's there's often jockeying going about to sort of uh, different delegates to kind of push what they believe is most important. And that's not unusual. I don't say that in a negative way. I think that any sort of body where you're bringing together uh, elected delegates, that's going to be normal. We all have our agendas that we come to the table with. And I'm, I'm certainly one of those guys. I, I had some things that I wanted to see get done. But um, it did sort of stall. Um, and for a while, there was a little bit of no activity. Um, but then the teams started to self-form which I think is always the best way to get things done. And groups started to center around the different topic areas that you have in the platform now. And one of those was, of course, uh, foreign policy. And the team that really um, centered around that was um, myself, 
uh, Skyler uh, was was actually the, the chief scribe and did most of the writing. Um, Eric Anton, uh, Dave Bovey, and I believe. Oh, I'm leaving some folks out too. I know that uh, Dane Garrett was involved uh, some with that, but Deb, uh, I think probably had his hand in that a little bit as well. And I'm probably forgetting some folks, but that's that's that was the, the major group. Um, we really to take to do our work. We had Skyler, uh, like I said, was the scribe. Skyler put stuff on paper, and then the team would all take shots at it. We'd all we'd all get out our uh, our guns, shoot holes in it. Um, give ideas where we think it needs to be improved. Um, and in terms of working groups that I have worked with professionally or, or in any capacity, I thought this group worked very well together. There was no uh, no hurt feelings about uh, disagreement or uh, giving constructive criticism. That The group really worked well together. That. And I think because of that, we were able to produce a foreign policy section where, where the party really had none before that I'm really happy with, and I think we, uh, we as a party should be happy with. I think it strikes a good balance between trying to push a, for lack of a better term, an anti-war agenda. Uh, I'll, I'll be happy to say a non-interventionist uh, agenda, but also realizing that we can't just be, um, we can't just cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. That that also is not an option. And so that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. How about and that? That's very helpful. How about if I just uh, read the first paragraph? We could call it the preamble of the plank. And then uh, perhaps you and Mario could both respond to that. And and then we could look at the particular points. So the preamble of the plank uh, reads as follows. The American Solidarity Party is committed to policies which will bring about a more peaceful world through international cooperation and prudent restraint in the use of military force. Peace is not just an absence of war, but the positive presence of justice and charity among people and among nations. The United States should use its diplomatic influence and soft power to promote an international order that respects the dignity of the human person. Administrations of both parties have pursued a policy of reckless overreach at great cost to both ourselves and other nations. Through its military, political, and economic interventions, the United States has exacerbated social and environmental instability in Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. In the place of this tired elite consensus, we need a foreign policy with both a realistic appreciation of our country's interests and a steadfast adherence to its values. So that's the lead paragraph. Mario, does that sound like a good way to get started? Uh, <clears throat> I think so. I think it's very, <clears throat> um, very explicit. Uh, and yet what I see there is just uh, a set of policies in the broader sense 
uh, in other words, is showing how the party will deal with some international issues based on cooperation and restraint. But uh, I have a, a, a question for Jeffrey, even more concrete than that. If that is the proposal in general terms, what was the analysis about the world that uh, led the uh, delegate to propose this uh, broad uh, view of foreign policy? Well, I can I can certainly only concretely speak to my view of the world, um, but I think you'll find uh, in varying degrees some agreement with some of the things I'm, I'm going to say. Um, and I will also say my perspective is that of a uh, I am a retired naval officer. Um, I have I have plenty of sand in my boots from all of the places in the world that we've been involved in the last 20 years. Um, and I, I went and I, I followed my orders and I carried out my duty. Um, I often feel that in terms of foreign policy, because the military is actually so very good at our primary job, which is to be a military force that, um, you know, the old cliche is, is you know, to break things and, and destroy. And that is what we do. Um, that has become a bit of the easy button answer for our politicians that whenever there's a problem, it's just get the bat out because the bat works real well, at least seemingly works well, uh, at doing what the bat does. But the problem is we leave a big mess after that, and the, the, the more we use the bat to solve our problems, the deeper we get into that mess. And it seems like those messes then cause us to use the bat even more, and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a death spiral. We're, we're, we're stuck in a bad spot. And we're stuck in spots where the answer to get out, on one hand, you'll have a, a, a faction will say, we just need to drop everything and leave now, and I understand that. Um, and then you have a faction that will say, no, we got to stay for the long haul, and we got to continue what we're doing. It's a, it's a dangerous world. And um, I think our group was one saying that we're not going to be able to get out of this overnight, but we need to have a tendency towards not using the military for everything. And that's going, to be, that's going to be a little bit of a painful withdrawal, and it's going to take some time, but that's the trajectory we believe we need to uh, be on to not only assert some goodness, reassert some goodness that the United States can provide the world, um, but also just internally so we can take care of some of our own problems as well. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, but I certainly try yes. to. Yes, my, my point is that uh, if we begin... Uh, looking at the world from uh, the perspective of a post-world uh, or post-Soviet Union collapse. So it seems that uh, the, one of the options was seeing the United States as the only superpower. Now, after many years, uh, that uh, view seems to be changing because the merging of other powers. So perhaps uh, we are witnessing right now the end of bipolarity and so we began again to uh, the, try to build some alliances here and there. Uh, that seems to be what is happening in the world with the emerging power of China and in uh, uh, Europe as well. Now, uh, having said that, if we uh, go issue by issue, let's say that we need to deal with uh, protection of human rights in a foreign land which is uh, close to American 
influence, so to speak. Let's say that we need to protect human rights in some country in Latin America. And we don't want to intervene. We don't want to use uh, uh, military power. So what would be the best uh, choice for this, for this platform, for the American Solidarity Party, in order somehow to convey people that there are certain rights that should be protected? We might take Venezuela as a test case. Well, I could, I could certainly, in a general sense, um, let me address one point you made, and then I'll get to your question. I, I, I think that perhaps the notion the, the United States as the, the, quote, only superpower was a misnomer to, to begin with. Um, yes, I, I, will, I will stress again, in terms of our military capability, we have no peer in this world. Um, we can break down a, uh, an opposing force uh, like nobody's business, very quickly. And in fact, usually the, the, the battles and the war are over before, uh, before the enemy even knows they started. We are that good. Um, but that's only part of it. And um, so the notion of I'm going to be this superpower and I'm going to be able to just throw my weight around, uh, that only goes so far. And what I sometimes point out to folks is that the resistance you get from these folks uh, or from the, 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 quote, opposition, you shouldn't be surprised that they don't acknowledge that they, quote, lost. Um, because we wouldn't either. And if, if, if it was a flip, if the situation was, was flipped around, and let's just say uh, I'm here uh, in my, uh, my city of Norfolk, or I'm, I'm in my uh, ancestral lands up in the Appalachians, which I think is a very fitting place to talk about this, and I'm getting bombed uh, by the air, and I have opposing forces coming in. I'm not giving up. I mean, that's just not my nature. I'm going to fight. I'm going to continue to fight. I'm going to fight any way I can, and I'm going to fight, make it long and protracted. And uh, at the end of the day, I don't have to beat you. I just have to make it so you want to give up. And we've already demonstrated that we, we were willing to do that somewhat in Korea. We've demonstrated we were willing to do that in Vietnam. And we demonstrated that we were willing to do that in Iraq, that as long as the enemy makes it just uh, so painful that we lose interest, that we will walk away. That's all they have to do. Now, to your, your bigger question about human rights and, and being able to take action when we need to take action, um, we never seem to have the proper discussion to go down that road. And, and uh, let me say from the start, I can understand the plight of, uh, you know, just you could pick any country. I mean, the arguments were used, for the, for the, uh, were used in Iraq that uh, Saddam was massacring his people. He was a tyrant, violating their human rights. Absolutely he did. Um, and I would want to put an end to that if I could. I just don't think we have the ability to do that on our own, given everything else I've talked about. I think that we overestimate our ability to affect change on such a, a scale. And so if the global community, especially if it's going to be regional, feels that some of these things are an issue, and I think more of our attention should be helping our actual real neighbors rather than going gallivanting all over the world. Uh, it needs to be a regional solution, and it can't be the U.S. is a superpower and we're obliged to help. It needs to be the U.S. is there with every other nation who can bring a hand to bear. And, you know, sad to say, if there's no agreement there, um, I don't think we should be acting alone because, quite honestly, the track record shows that 
we're not capable of doing it without making a mess, um, and that should be no surprise. Um, and so my heart goes out to those situations, but unless we have the resolve and we have a, a backing of everybody else in the area, and I shouldn't say, like, it has to be unanimous, but, you know, if we have a good coalition, then we can't act. And that, that would be sort of my general answer uh, for that, that question. Let me look at one of the bullet points, as we call them, uh, in the plank. And it will take us back to your point, Jeffrey, that sometimes after the bat has broken things and there doesn't appear to be a way of putting things back together, uh, nonetheless there has to be a, a, a gradualism in moving our forces out of a given area. Uh, for those of you who have the document at hand, this would be five bullet points down, and it reads as follows. Our military involvement throughout the world over the last several decades has left some regions dependent on the relative security the United States provides. While this arrangement is not desirable in the long term, we cannot simply retreat immediately from some regions where a rapid exodus would cause further instability. Instead, a deliberate withdrawal is needed to ensure that American allies or clients are not left isolated and at risk by our departure. A reduction in military bases abroad should occur as part of this policy shift, except for those required to protect diplomatic missions or to meet explicit treaty obligations. Now, here we might take uh, Afghanistan as a test case. Comments on this particular point of the of the plank. I'm happy to start. If that's okay, I was sure since I just go ahead. I just talked, but uh, that was actually a sentiment that I was very strong about having uh, in our platform. Um, and I will come back to Afghanistan, but I'll, I'll, I'll get there via a little bit of a, a different path. Um, having been over there and dealing with locals who, who do support us and uh, actually see the good that, that we do try to do when we're over there, uh, I am also well aware that when we decide that we don't want to play anymore and that it's too hard, um, and walk away, we leave those people in a lurch, and those people are often victimized. And, and I believe we owe those folks um, solidarity as well, that we started something in their their homes, and then we walk away. And I, I, I think that's an injustice, and that's really what this is getting to. You know, Colin Powell famously said uh, about the war, if you, if you break it, you, you buy it. And I don't think we have ever really internalized that. Um, my feeling... I'm going, to, I'm going to take even a step back to Iraq. Um, aside from whether Iraq was just or not, just put that on the table because I think that's a that's a debatable point as well. And and I'm not a I'm not a fan. I'm ultimately not a fan of what we did in Iraq. But just put put it aside whether it was just or not. Uh, put, put that aside. Um, there should also be a consideration 
and I think this is developing in the just war theory too, because there's you know the just justice in going to war, justice in how you conduct war, and it seems to be we're developing a justice in how you end the war. Um, there needs to be a a consideration for um, for what we do after the fact and how we walk away. I would have advised um, President Bush, had I been in that situation, I would have said, sir, not only do you need a formal declaration of war from Congress, I mean formal, this authorization you force, I don't think should, should cut it. I think everybody has to acknowledge with very, very explicit language that we are going to war. I would have also gone to the American people and said to them, you know, my fellow Americans, I am proposing that uh, we need to go into Iraq. Here are the reasons why I think we need to go, and make no mistake, we're going to be on a war footing, and you can expect to have to stay there for decades after the war to help clean it up. And if you, the American people, don't believe that we should invest, say, 40 to 50 years of our blood, sweat, and tears to fix that thing we break, then it ain't worth doing, and we need to walk away. Um, that's what I think needs to be done, and I think if we had that acknowledgement, we'd actually avoid war. Now we're in situations where we quickly run away, and I alluded to, uh, I alluded somewhat to Korea, certainly Vietnam, and I, I'm not getting into the aspects of whether the fight was, was, was right. I'm getting into the aspects that we left people hanging. But we leave early. We, it happened in Iraq when they pulled out, uh, and, and ISIS was able to uh, reconstitute. We leave it a bigger mess then we found it. And I think we have an obligation to see these things through that we started as adults, uh, as painful as they are, with an eye, though, of towards uh, uh, getting out and egressing. Um, the, the recent situation in Syria was a, another great example of this. I was not for us getting involved in Syria the way we did, but we did. And then when the president decided he uh, thought pulling out was a, a good idea, uh, we had just made promises to the Kurds. But we did it again. And, you know, we've also done that to the Kurds before uh, post-Desert um, Storm. We, we leave these folks hanging. Um, so that brings me around to uh, Afghanistan. Um, I fear with Afghanistan that we're at a, a point where we have uh, – there's nothing, there's nothing left to be gained there. I, I'm not sure we can fix what we broke because I'm not sure it was fixed to begin with. Um, one of the interesting things about Afghanistan when I was there was we would build these nice buildings uh, for, for, the, uh, for the locals, for the local governments, and within, uh, you know, within months, all of the copper had been pulled out of them by the locals, all of the copper wiring, so they could sell it. They just would gut the stuff. Um, I remember hearing a story how we built a, uh, a bit of a highway for them. And some of the locals were upset because now you just made it easier for the warlords to travel by car to come and harass us. Before they had to get, they had to they had to go over rough terrain. It kept them out of our our hair. And so we tend to try to help these guys uh, in ways that are very American. It's like it's like uh, the civil planners get off the uh, planes as soon as hostilities end, and and there's a guy with blueprints going, okay, uh, the McDonald's will go here. You're going to want a Walmart here. Let's write your constitution. Of course, you're going to want to buy camera legislation because everybody wants that. We try to redesign in our own image, not realizing these folks don't necessarily want that. They don't need it. And uh, we're going to be counterproductive uh, in, in, um, in pushing forward on that. So the problem with Afghanistan now, uh, even with what I said about the long haul, 
I'm not sure anyone has a plan for a long haul there, and I'm not sure there, there can be a plan for a long haul there. So I will admit I don't have a good answer for that. It's just a mess. So long-winded, but uh, I get back the floor. Oh, we, we are opposed to sound bites on this podcast. We encourage the wind if it blows well, so don't, don't worry about that. Let me ask this question next. You want to, and I, I can understand this, you want to say if we're going to have a war, we ought to be uh, uh, very clear about what's involved in a war, and there's a, a justice in going to war, a justice in war, and a developing appreciation for a justice in leaving war. And all of this uh, might mean that we have to make a resolve that amounts to, say, a 30-year, 40-year commitment. Do you think the American people can resolve to do anything other than to watch more TV for 30 or 40 years? Uh, sadly, uh, well, no, yeah, I, and I'm the American people too, so I got to say this about myself. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not standing in judgment of, of the rest of my fellow Americans. But yeah, we have a short attention span. Um, but if that a short attention span means we shouldn't be going off to, into war, then that's what it means. And and I think no American, probably if President Bush had laid it out. Well, some Americans would, but if President Bush had laid it out the way I said it, I think most people would not have been a favorable one, and we wouldn't have gone. And that would have been the right answer, given our attention span. We're, we're not up for that. Um, and it seems to me that we're probably only really up for it when um, we feel that uh, our, our, our own well-being is completely at stake. Other than that, we've got it so good that uh, we, we quickly lose interest. And, and, you know, think about it. That's what President Bush told everyone. And I understand why he did it. He was trying to keep people um, in a good mindset. But what was the message? Go out, continue to do your shopping, go to your football games, enjoy. The military's got it. Well, that's not really in the long run. Short term, I got it. I understand the, the pep talk. But in the long run, that's not a good mindset for the American people to have. Because meanwhile, you know, the, the rest of us in the military are all fighting this thing. Uh, and everybody else just quickly forgets about it. And uh, it should be something that's important. So I, I would say we don't have the attention span for it. Therefore, we shouldn't do it. There was, a, along these same lines, there was a, a, a good amount of discussion about how, in the context of the military effort in Iraq, that it, it should be made very clear what's what's at stake to to ordinary people because most people could go on about their business without paying much attention and one of the proposals was there ought to be a major hike in gas prices so that every time anybody bought gas and they wondered why they were spending so much they would be reminded that they're spending so much because of this war and then they would think about it much more than they would ordinarily think about it. And and that, too, raises in my mind, uh, I actually grew up with a 
I like to say, a generation of orderlies. <laughs> I, I was uh, of, of draftable age during the Vietnam War, and most of my friends were conscientious objectors, as, as I was. But if there's no draft, then once again, there's a way to insulate everybody who's involved from the rest of the population or insulate the rest of the population from the relatively few people who volunteered, which, which makes, uh, makes invisible much of what's actually going on. Now, the next thing I want to say is, is in, a, in a sense, completely off the wall, so be warned. But again and again and again and again, when I listen to, to politicians in the major parties, I, I, I want them to say something like, and unless we, as Americans, change our lives and develop some basic virtues, None of what we propose is, is going to work. It all depends on virtuous citizens. Now, here's a case that comes to mind because I just discovered it yesterday. In the last year, according to the New York Times, there were, I don't know how they work this out, but this was front page. Sunday New York Times, where they have their more reflective, in-depth articles. Front page, 45 million, 45 million instances of graphic child abuse and or torture on the Internet. Now, I, I haven't come to terms with that. I've had 24 hours. I probably could use 24 months to come to terms with that. But if you have a population which has that kind of grotesque phenomenon, uh, I think any politician who says anything ought to stop and say, and this country of ours has got to have a profound reform of, of heart and spirit. And that would connect, now if we go from off the wall to back to the court, that would connect with, before we decide to wage war, we ought to take a good long look at who we are. I don't think uh, I don't think anyone can dispute that. So if I can if I can interject something there, Jim, um, yes. but I don't think that uh, any other country would be different today. In other words, if you have a survey of uh, the same phenomenon in some, let's say, Latin American country, I don't think there would be much difference. So in other words, you don't have there the ingredients to make that uh, population really virtuous in order to build their own democracy. So that uh, said, um, lead us to 
I think uh, something is in the platform of the American Solidarity Party. We cannot build a democracy from from the United States by using force, much less uh, for, uh, through interventions. So something should come up from the local people, and that come up through the traditional way of building democracy through citizenry and uh, building through certain principles and uh, certain morality and so on. And that cannot come from the top down rather than the bottom up. So in some ways, not interventionist policies, or at least use of power. Soft power is much better approach, I think, that um, just intervene, intervening in those uh, situations and try to build democracy by, by fiat or by force. Could, could you, and I was tempted to raise this question earlier on, could you say a little bit about what soft power refers to? Jeffrey? Sorry. Um, there are, I think there are degrees of, of what we'll call soft power. Um, because my problem also with some of the things that fall into soft power, those aren't necessarily, they're soft in that we're not um, dropping bombs on people. But we are uh, we're using things like sanctions and economic means to um, convince people, with, uh, you know, with uh, quote marks around that, convince them uh, to uh, change their way of doing things or to go along with the way that we want to do things. I'm not so sure those things are um, useful either. And I'm not saying there's not a place for them at times. There certainly is. Um, I would like to see uh, softer power uh, be a lot more about leadership, um, setting the example, and sometimes setting some some hard examples with some countries that traditionally have been uh, allied with us, um, but taking a stronger stand with them on some of their human rights issues. And I think that if we really want to use the softest power, which is, again, leadership by example, that's going to go back to us uh, exhibiting some of that virtue, uh, Mr. Hennick, that you're talking about and doing some things that are difficult but right. But if we're not doing that in our own daily lives, I don't think it's realistic to expect our leadership, uh, our political leadership, to do it in their lives. Um, just to put a capstone on that, we, we don't have the leadership. The leadership doesn't cause us to change. We have our current leadership because it reflects us. Um, the only people we have to blame for our, our political leadership is ourselves because we in our own lives are not living in accordance with all the right and just things ourselves. Let me offer another test case. This is a big case and, and a big test. We have China, and they're about to celebrate tomorrow National Day, National Day. And there have been some comments from some of our leadership. I think that Vice President Pence has at least on occasion uh, addressed this problem. We have, as far as I can tell from what I read, we have a country that has 
a million-plus people in re-education camps. And it's a, a religious minority, the Muslims, the Uyghurs in particular, but it's, it's spread that people in areas adjacent to uh, the location of the preponderance of the Uyghurs, uh, a million people in re-education camps with the most laughable lies told about the nature of those camps. It, it seems to me that uh, we have 95% of our coverage of the United States and China uh, addressing economic questions, trade war in particular, and yet we have this profound violation of human rights. And to add insult to injury, we have, and I make a sharp distinction between what the church teaches and Vatican diplomatic policies. I make a very sharp distinction. We have a, a, a much touted, although secret, uh, what could I call it, protocol worked out with the Chinese government. Uh, for some sort of alleged freedom in the church without any reference to this whatsoever. It's just extraordinary. And that seems to me to be a, another manifestation of central political issues, United States-Chinese relations, that pretty much ignore the most central question. Now, what's a little party like us supposed to do about something like that? Listeners are calling in. (laughs) (laughs) I have to turn my attention to the phones. Yeah, but in five minutes, I'll tell you how to solve the China problem. Stand by. Right. No, no, I'm not... uh, but the, uh, the just just the uh, imbalance and the whole orientation towards it is just staggering, and it is a matter of foreign policy. It is, but at the end of the day, they make stuff for us, right? And we like our stuff. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you on my iPhone, which was probably made in China, right? So um, we, I don't know how you 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 divorce that quickly because there's going to be lots of people that would be upset with uh, disrupting the, the chain of stuff that comes our way. Um, nevertheless, I think you got to advocate that it needs to be done. They need to be called out for their, um, their transgressions, but not to a point. I mean, this is, this is where I get to like understanding the other cultures. I can call them out on it and I can start to put pressure on them and I can lead by example and, and be that, you know, that, the United States is, you know, the, uh, a shining hill or a shining city on the hill type thing. Um, but I can't do it to the point where uh, I shut them off. I have to engage them somewhat. Uh, you know, an example might be of, I'll bring it around to the military again. That, um, good, in the Navy, good, because we, we, need to, we need to be in a lot of places at once. 
Yeah, and sometimes part of that being in places, there's, there's a difference between being there to, to shoot them up, but there's a thing that the Navy used to refer to, well, we still do, but we would just call it presence. It was just there. Now, for a Navy, that's very important because traditionally we would be out uh, showing the flag so that any of our merchant vessels, uh, you know, to provide protection for there to show other folks that we care about them. And you know, that goes back to way long ago. I mean, like Barbary Pirates type, type time, right? So we show the flag for that. But one of the aspects of presence also was engagement with foreign nations. And now we haven't always done that well, but I will say that in the modern era, we often do exercises with uh, foreign countries. Um, and it's not just the Navy. It's just the Navy does a lot of it. The Navy Marine Corps does a lot of it just by the nature of our, uh, our going to sea. And we would engage with these countries, and we would do, you know, some minimal type of joint training exercises and things like that. And, and often some of these exercises, we don't get anything out of them from the U.S. point of view. But these, these countries that we engage... They do get some good training out of it, but what they also get is they get some engagement with Americans. And sometimes that engagement is just completely social, but there's other times when that engagement is uh, it's more of a philosophical nature, um, you know, where these countries see that as, as an officer, no, I don't. Uh, I, I defer to my civilian leadership because that's the way things are, or I, I respect. Uh, the people I serve. I'm here to serve the American people. It's not the other way around. They're not here to provide for me. That sort of influence does happen, and it needs to continue to happen. And I think these are the ways that we start to influence countries like China or even Iran. I don't think with the Iran situation, uh, I wasn't a fan of the nuclear um, agreement. But we made it, and I think because we made it, we should have stuck to it. But I was more of a, a, a fan of, look, let's not try to bite the entire apple at once. We need to just start doing things with Iran down at, at the local level. Let's just have soccer games with them, things like that. I know that might sound very trite to people or, or simplistic, but I think that's the level you have to start building trust upon and engage these folks at the lower level and start to realize that, maybe your disagreements aren't that far apart, and maybe we can influence them with a different way of thinking that pushes them in the right direction. But I will say, even with that point, Mr. Hanek, I go back to your 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 point uh, a little bit ago. We have to have our own house in order, and if we don't have our own house in order, we, are, we, we can come across as being hypocritical. I, I have an anecdote that connects with your idea of what you might call uh, grandiloquently cultural exchange. Once upon a time, back when I was a wage slave <laughs> at Loyola Marymount University, we had in the philosophy department uh, a colleague whose alma mater was University of Beijing. <laughs> and, and, and she was, uh, at the time, in her 40s, so she remembered some of the very bad old days. Now, we had a, a decision to make in the department about a new hire, and those are the decisions that 
caused a lot of dissension. You were talking about everybody having his own agenda. Well, in a philosophy department, everybody has an idea of what philosophy really is, which is shared by nobody else. And so the idea, if you're going to hire somebody, you want to hire somebody who has your own unique view of what philosophy is. Well, at any rate, we, we were undecided. We had the vote, you know, five to five. Well, how about carried off these two candidates. Five to five, let's have another vote. And after about six or seven votes, the, the colleague from the University of Beijing said, vote again? <laughs> <laughs> she was just floored that we were going to continue to vote, just absolutely amazed at the prospect of still more votes. I was nauseated, but I wasn't surprised. Oh, well, that's an anecdote from from uh, my own background. Well, all right, then. Let, let me raise a different question, and in a way it connects with the bulk of what we've been speaking of. We have this preamble to the, the, the plank, which is, I think, extremely constructive. But then the first bullet point is this, the very first. We looked at the fifth bullet point about really withdrawal from involvements. The first bullet point says, just war theory is the foundation of moral foreign policy. Now, we've spoken a lot about war and the way that war is carried out. And the bullet point continues. It means that war should always serve as a last resort against grave acts of aggression and must be undertaken with clear goals and due regard for unintended consequences. Conduct of war must be governed by norms of proportionality and respect for human life. But, but it is startling, I think, and I think this is a mistake, too, to say that just war theory is the foundation of moral foreign policy. It, it seems like the foundation ought to be more in terms of what we can do to help people in, in, in constructive ways rather than the foundation of the policy is what we do as a last resort. Now, I think the... Uh, uh, the not taking seriously just war theory has been a profound problem in our foreign policy, but certainly theory of war isn't the foundation of foreign policy. That That's something that comes later, wouldn't you say? I think you, you, you bring up a good point there. Um, you know, I, you could say justice should always be the foundation of, uh, of everything. Um, I would equate that, that sentiment probably speaks more to the fact that we have been at at arms for such a long time uh, in this nation that that was probably on our brains a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I say, the, the preamble, if you want to call it that, is, is very positive and constructive. Mario, please bring us some more Latin American insights. Well, uh, I have been thinking about uh, the policy in China. And if I remember well, the claim that I heard many times was that if we engage with them in a trade, 
and give them the most favorable status uh, to the Chinese, then they are going to engage in capitalism, free market. They are going to uh, bring uh, wealth to their country. And when you bring wealth, people want to participate in political um, a political system. And so after that, democracy will happen. I heard many times after the end of the Cold War that claim so to justify the trade with China. And so, but after 20 some years, the result has been perhaps not quite good. And so they have strengthened their uh, economic apparatus, but uh, as you see in Hong Kong, there is nowhere uh, to be found what we call traditionally democracy. So, so it, my, my point is that uh, it's unclear to me what would be the best, the best approach in foreign policy to a system like this, which is totalitarian. Now, in the long run, here from 25 years from now, probably will work if we deal with uh, them in some cultural agreement and we play soccer with them and so on. We can somehow, in the long run, uh, by transmitting our values to them, um, but in the during this year, since that, that policy didn't work well. And let, let me just go back to uh, a comparison in, in Latin America after the 1960s, where the influence of the Soviet Union through the Soviet bloc was very substantial through Cuba. Cuba, And they proposed, uh, or they even imposed, revolution all across the continent. The United States, um, yes, was engaged in the in the Cold War as well, supporting some uh, military dictatorship. But at the same time, coming from the Kennedy administration came a policy, which was a little bit different, which was the line for progress, which meant that there, in order to somehow prevent this revolution. Uh, from the people help, uh, being helped by the Soviet Union, they proposed uh, some engagement and uh, agreements and working in, uh, in commerce and intercultural uh, exchanges and educational exchanges with uh, all the states in, in Latin America. And that program, I think, was uh, in many ways as a success in some places. In other words, some countries uh, began building their own democracies thanks to these exchanges. Um, now, I think that uh, is a mixed result because at the same time also there was some uh, confrontation with uh, some military junta. So my, my point is that not always, it seems, historically speaking, uh, the exchanges in... in uh, Habit way of living will work at least they don't work in the long. So there are programs and there are strategies that have have really been effective and fruitful. But it's back to playing the long game again, and I think that's what we have. We seem to have come to the conclusion that uh, we like to play the short game here in the states. That's right. 
let me look at uh, we're coming to the end of the hour and I look at all the bullet points and we've talked about two uh, uh, one more bullet point and it's okay if we go over a little bit it's uh, the um, seventh uh, bullet point in the plank on uh, uh, foreign policy. Nuclear weapons signal a failure to create a world that values peace over warfare. Our nation must lead the effort to rid the world of these terrible weapons through the use of arms control initiatives, non-proliferation treaties, and we're doing so to not diminish national security unilateral steps to reduce our nuclear weapon stockpiles. In particular, the United States should rejoin the Iran nuclear deal and should negotiate an update to the lapsed intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty with Russia. Further, as a nation, we should reject first use of nuclear weapons and should not seek first-strike capabilities. Jeffrey, would you like to highlight or lowlight some of the aspects of that bullet? Sure, because I was uh, my hand was very strong in writing those words. So uh, yeah, um, I've never liked nuclear weapons. Uh, certainly, I've been trained to use them. Um, my beef with them is they're indiscriminate. Uh, they are not a uh, they are not an honorable means of fighting. Now, I don't. Um, I think the, the U.S. use of nuclear weapons in World War II was wrong. Um, however, I am not one of these people that I'm going to I'm going to damn the president to hell for it or anything like that. I wasn't in his shoes. Thank God, I wasn't in a position to have to make that call. I, I'm saying it now, sitting where I am. Um, but I will say this: that even when that decision was made, um, Admiral King, Admiral Leahy, uh, General MacArthur. Admiral Nimitz and General Eisenhower, they were all against the use of nuclear weapons against Japan. They did not feel it was needed, nor did they feel it was justified. In fact, Admiral King was very adamant that he was not taught to wage war on innocent civilians. He was a man-at-arms. He would only go after other people who were under arms. Um, now, I will say, some people will, will bring up the fact that MacArthur wanted to use uh, tactical nukes in Korea. That is true. He wanted to use small nukes that would could be targeted uh, strictly against, at least in his mind, against the enemy compactors. So it's always an issue of the weapons not discriminating enough to, to get to the target. At least in my mind, from a Navy standpoint, I never minded the notion of using a nuke on, say, a ballistic missile, a Soviet ballistic missile submarine at sea, and I could use a nuke to take that out because it was going to launch nukes. It didn't bother me because I'm not going to, you know, we're not blowing up a city. But good grief, we, these weapons uh, just have the potential for doing so much, so much harm and getting out of hand that we should, as the U.S., be leading the world in trying to, to get rid of them and downplay them. I mean, I, I understand the cat's out of the bag to some extent. But technology usually trumps things like this. And we should be trying to get rid of them while developing means to combat against them if folks try to use them, you know, in a way to neutralize them 
rather than having to still rely upon the effective but insane notion of mutual assured destruction. Um, you know, that that is a notion that I do believe works. Uh, folks know that if they lob a nuke, that odds are they're going to get hit in kind and not in a good way. But, man, who wants to live like that? I certainly don't. And also the cost for these things is outrageous. Uh, that, that would be resources better spent elsewhere. So I would love to see our party continue to push the notion of getting rid of uh, nuclear arms, and we should lead the way. I'm not a fan of just unilaterally getting rid of all of ours, but I have no problem with the notion of unilaterally starting to reduce ours as a, uh, a gesture and, and to show that, you know, we only need enough to, to maintain a deterrence. I don't need enough to, uh, to wipe you out 18 times, because at that point, you know, what is the point? Very sober thoughts. Very sober. Well, we are at the end of our hour, and I hesitate to go to another bullet point because uh, any one of them could lead us to another hour, and there's no reason why we can't come back uh, on another podcast uh, to this plank. We are going to come back to the education uh, plank. We already have someone who wants to revisit that discussion, somebody who's been a teacher for a long time at the elementary level. And I think that uh, when you reflect on education, it really helps to, to have a from the beginning to the end which is no end at all, overview. Let's end then, as we usually do, with the, the gospel of today's liturgy. And this is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. An argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest, Jesus realized the intention of their hearts and took a child and placed it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is the greatest. Then John said in reply, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow in our company. Jesus said to him, Do not prevent him, for whoever is not against you is for you. The Gospel of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Thank you very George, much. And thanks always to Mario Ramos Urias and we'll have a new podcast next week. God bless Thank all. You, sir. Godspeed. Take care. Thank you, Jeffrey. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.